Well, we know Professor McDougall is here and has, uh, um, should arrive momentarily, so let's go ahead and, uh, let's go ahead and get started. Um, I'm James Stoner. I teach at Louisiana State University. I was uh, in the sophomore class of Madison Fellows here a couple years ago, and I'm honored to be invited back to moderate uh, a panel at this important conference. Our topic this afternoon is the naked public square today. Uh, now, everyone knows that metaphors need to be understood in context. When 20 years ago, um, then Pastor Newhouse invented the metaphor of the naked public square, I think he could have presumed that the response would be that it ought to be decently clothed. Today, when one mentions naked public square, one wonders if the response to be expected isn't that the hearer, the hearer will get on Google or MapQuest and look for the address to go check out the latest tattoos and body piercings and so forth. Uh, now, maybe it's just the Louisianian in me who want to uh, or presume that uh, the subtitle for the session ought to be um, Carnival in the Public Square, but I'll leave it to, uh, uh, after these few remarks, to um, leave, leave it to the distinguished panelists to define the topic as they see fit. Uh, our paper this afternoon is given by uh, Professor Marianne Glendon, who is Learned Hand Professor at uh, Harvard Law School. Uh, she is the author of a number of legal treatises, including Abortion and Divorce in Western Law, The Transformation of Family Law, Comparative Legal Traditions. Uh, she wrote uh, several books that received quite a bit of note, uh, uh, more general books, about the legal profession in the mid-1990s, Rights Talk, The Impoverishment of Political Discourse, and A Nation Under Lawyers. And then she is author, author most recently of a book titled A World Made New, Eleanor Roosevelt and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, she serves on the President's Council on Bioethics uh, and most recently has been appointed President of the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences by Pope John Paul II. Our commentators uh, are Professor Stephen Macedo, who teaches here at Princeton and is director of Princeton's Center for Human Values uh, and holds the Lawrence S. Rockefeller uh, Professorship of Politics. He, too, is the author of a number of books, including Diversity and Distrust and Liberal Virtues, um, Incisive Studies of Liberal Thought, and uh, is editor as well of a number of volumes. You'll find those mentioned in the program. Our second commentator will be Professor Walter McDougall, who is Aloy Anson, Professor of History and International Relations at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, he's author of uh, some marvelous histories, uh, including um, the book, uh, my favorite among them, uh, Promised Land, Crusader State, which is a, a, a very uh, insightful study relating different themes of American foreign policy to America's religious symbology and traditions. Uh, he's editor as well of the journal or Orbis. Uh, we'll begin with Professor Glendon's paper and then uh, ask each commentator to take uh, uh, 10 minutes. And I realize that my most important job this afternoon is to make sure we end on time so that we allow uh, Father Newhouse plenty of time for his remarks. So uh, Professor Glendon will speak on the naked public square today, a secular public square question mark. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here, and it's so great to see in the audience so many people who 
probably were not old enough to be reading political philosophy in 1984. But some of you might have been permitted by your parents to see the most popular action film of 1984. In that film, The Terminator, the hero has to prevent a killer cyborg from carrying out an attempt to alter history. And if the hero had not succeeded, we Americans would have been headed for domination in the not-too-distant future by semi-human creatures that we ourselves had created, consciousness, conscious beings, that by 2024 would escape human control. Now, Richard Newhouse's 1984 book was concerned with more subtle threats to the American democratic experiment, but he too aimed at nothing less than shifting historical probabilities. His purpose, as I understand it, and pretty soon he'll tell whether any of us have got his purposes right, uh, I understand it to have been a double one. First, to sound a warning that our growing tendency to rule religiously grounded moral viewpoints out of bounds in the public square does injustice to what Newhouse incorrigibly refers to as the incorrigibly religious American citizenry. His second purpose, and that will be my focus here, was to warn that an overly aggressive secularizing program can damage the cultural foundations of our form of government. The subtitle of his book is, of course, Religion and Democracy in America. Now, 20 years later, this symposium provides ample testimony to the fact that his ideas and those of his associates have transformed the debate. They've had a powerful influence on the debate about religion and public life. But it's far less clear that those ideas have had much influence on the legal and cultural developments about which he warned us. So as my contribution to this celebration, I want to offer some tentative thoughts under two headings. First, about whether the public square has, in fact, become more or less open to the expression of religiously grounded moral viewpoints. And secondly, about whether we as a nation are doing better or worse at assuring a continuing supply of citizens with the skills and virtues and qualities that are necessary to sustain a democratic experiment in a large heterogeneous society. And uh, the intersection of those two questions, to my mind, is uh, in the area of education, the schools. So I will be focusing a great deal on law and culture with respect to the schools. But on the first point, it seems to me that the naked public square was in good measure a rallying cry. It was a call for men and women of faith to make themselves heard in setting the conditions under which we order our lives together. And it was accompanied by a reminder, much discussed uh, in one of the panels yesterday, that those who wish to bring 
religiously-based values to bear in public discourse, have an obligation, and here I'll quote Newhouse, to translate those values into terms that are as accessible as possible to those who do not share the same religious grounding. If religious voices in the United States today are stronger, more confident, and more adept at translating in that sense, much of the credit must go to Richard Newhouse for his encouragement and his example. But it's not enough to have citizens who are willing and able to answer the first part of his call. There also have to be theaters where those skills can be exercised, where exchanges can regularly take place. So how open are public settings today for conversation, contention, compromise among a wide variety of moral actors? The picture is, to say the least, mixed. If we start with Supreme Court decisions, I have to say that uh, I found my friend Jerry Bradley's uh, interpretation of the religion decisions of the Supreme Court to be wildly optimistic. I uh, was saying to Professor Bradley at lunch that looking at these decisions is something like looking at tea leaves. You can see all kinds of patterns in them. And uh, some of us might look at the tea leaves and see uh, the best possible outcome that we could ever wish for, which I think is what Professor Bradley did. And some of us, uh, and I say this is my approach, tend to see their worst fears uh, realized, or at least the potential for their worst fears to be realized. So uh, what I think you can say about this uh, massive decisions. Uh, Professor Bradley is quite right that the moment is right for somebody to make some sense and coherence, principled coherence out of them. But I think what we see right now overall is a Supreme Court that continues to set the establishment language and the free exercise provision at odds with one another. And here I just want to pay tribute to one of the great contributions that Richard Newhouse made to the understanding of the First Amendment's religion language. It uh, had long been said by historical analysts that the two parts of the religion language were meant to operate together in uh, furtherance of a single good, the good of religious freedom. But uh, Richard, perhaps uh, because of a background in textual interpretation, uh, scriptural interpretation, said you can uh, reinforce that historical approach with a simple grammatical approach. Those of you who remember, do they still teach grammar in high school? I hope so. Uh, take a look at the First Amendment's religion language. As Richard Newhouse quite properly said, there's no clause in there, much less clause as. There is, in the religion part, a simple declarative sentence with two participial phrases. And those two phrases, uh, the grammatical interpretation reinforcing the historical interpretation, naturally seem to work together to promote the single value of religious freedom. Well, I don't want to go too far down that path because it's not my main subject. Um, 
what I would say about the Supreme Court decisions and what gives me uh, too much anxiety to follow my heart, which would go with Professor Bradley's interpretation, is a 2004 decision of the Supreme Court, which happened to involve a student of mine now at Harvard Law School, Locke versus Davey, where the court actually gave its stamp of approval to official religious discrimination by permitting the state of Washington to single out the study of theology for exclusion from a public scholarship program. However, if we turn from developments in the court, those murky developments, if we turn to the elected branches, I think we can see that Newhouse's ideas have met a somewhat warmer reception there. His advocacy, for example, on behalf of experiments with delivery of social services, including education, by faith-based organizations, found significant support within the Clinton administration and the Bush administrations. It's when efforts were made to put those ideas into practice to actually start pilot programs and experiments that obstacles appeared. On the one hand, religious institutions have been permitted to participate in many publicly funded programs, but the pressures on those institutions to compromise their principles as the price of participation are often considerable, legal and cultural pressures. Now I'd like to turn to the area where I think we see the most vivid illustration of Newhouse's point that a public square from which religion has been banished will not long remain naked. The most important public square for most of this country's children is the schoolroom, the public schoolroom. And it is hard to think of any public setting from which, A, religion has been more rigorously excluded, leaving aside the exception for after-school activities, or B, where secularism is more dogmatically promulgated. When one considers that most children spend more waking hours in school than with their parents, and again, leaving aside the hours they spend with the media, when one considers that many public schools actively proselytize against the most deeply held convictions of many religions, it's obvious why the schools have become the chief battlegrounds of the struggle over the role of religion, not only in public life, but in private life as well. For you cannot maintain that separation easily. Stephen Carter pointed that out in an essay for First Things when he said that secularism, not only, quoting here, not only dismisses many Americans' most cherished beliefs from the public sphere, but even tries through the device of public education to make it harder for those beliefs to function in the private sphere. So what is a parent to do? Parents do have the legal right to withdraw their children from government-controlled education, but that right can only be exercised by parents determined enough to undertake homeschooling. And there are 1.1 million children in the United States currently being homeschooled, an impressive number, but still relatively small, or be wealthy enough to afford private education after paying taxes to support government schools. 
So it was an important advance for parental choice experiments when the Supreme Court decided in, 19, in uh, 2002 that the First Amendment's establishment provision, you notice I don't say clause, was not violated by a voucher program that included religious schools. But those programs are still few and far between, and in most states they have to overcome the obstacle of state constitutional amendments adopted in the know-nothing era that are interpreted to bar vouchers as aid to religion. I want to emphasize some of the issues in this area, questions that I find very difficult, I'd like to hear some discussion of, because it seems to me that how the issues in this area are resolved have important implications for religious freedom, for parents who are trying to raise their children in accordance with their own deepest beliefs, and for the future of the democratic experiment. So let me start by saying that uh, the current, the status quo in the public schools seems to me to offer an attractive solution to some very real problems. In a pluralistic society like ours, there are obviously limits to the degree to which public education can accommodate religious diversity of the families it serves. Also, and this is a point that uh, Stephen Macedo has made eloquently, the more heterogeneous our society is, the more need we have to find ways to shore up a sense of commonality, of unity, of uh, dedication to common purposes. But what needs to be recognized, and here I think is what, what we haven't had enough discussion about, what needs to be recognized is that whether intended to or not, a secular agenda in the public schools is a program for the formation of persons and thus a program for cultural transformation. So the great unanswered question about this is what are the implications for civic life, for the democratic experiment, of the transformation of this country's once vaguely Protestant public schools into secular government schools? Will those schools promote the traits that a system of self-government requires in its citizens? Will they really advance a sense of common purpose among a diverse population, or will they merely indoctrinate persons to serve either the needs of the state or the ideologies of opinion leaders? I think it's interesting that those questions which we so seldom ask were matters that were central to John Stuart Mill's essay on liberty in the part of the essay on liberty that nobody ever reads. Part five, titled Applications. After having announced the principle, then he says, and here's how it will work under practical circumstances. And here he chose to focus on schooling. Here's what he said. He said it is essential for the sake of liberty to leave it up to parents to decide where and how their children will be educated. What he feared was not religion in the schools, but government in the schools. And here's what he wrote. All that I have said of the importance of individuality of character and diversity in opinions and modes of conduct 
involves as of the same unspeakable importance diversity of education. A general state education is a mere contrivance for molding people to be exactly like one another. And as the mold in which it casts them is that which either pleases the predominant power or the majority of the existing generation, in proportion as it is efficient and successful, it establishes a despotism over the mind which leads by natural tendency to a despotism over the body. Well, what does he say about state education then? He says, I quote again, it should only exist if it exists at all as one among many competing experiments carried on for the purpose of example and stimulus to keep the others up to a certain standard of excellence. Ideally, he said, government's role in education should be confined to payment of fees for what he called the poorer classes. Now, we 21st century Americans are going to say at this point, hold on a minute. Wouldn't that worsen economic and social divisions among our highly heterogeneous population? And what about religious schools that teach explicitly anti-liberal principles? Those are serious questions. And I certainly wouldn't deny that they represent, they call attention to real risks. I don't think the answers are clear. But it seems to me that since we in the United States have established the very system that Mill considered the most dangerous, it might be a good idea to give some attention to the risks about which he warned. With government firmly in control of and religion largely excluded from the majority of our system's chief institutions for teaching and transmitting culture from one generation to another, what is the likely effect on our country's ability to form citizens with the habits and attitudes that a liberal democracy requires. We're meeting today under the auspices of the James Madison program, so it seems appropriate to recall what Madison himself said about those skills and virtues. He said a democracy would require a higher degree than any other form of government. And that idea that the democratic experiment requires certain qualities and skills in the citizens is one that I believe is shared among a range of thinkers that would include Richard Newhouse, Stephen Macedo, William Galston, Robert George. I think that broad agreement could probably be reached not only on that proposition, but on the, in a general way, on the kinds of skills that are required. So drawing on writings by Professor Macedo, Professor Galston, and others, I and mean, just mentioning a few of those things, reason giving, uh, deliberation, consensus building, civility, public spiritedness, respect for the rule of law, capacity for self-restraint, awareness of one's own rights and respect for the rights of others. And here I think what, what's often left out of those lists, I would add to that, is now that we have incorporated into our democratic experiment a welfare system of some sort, 
we've upped the ante so far as the qualities that are needed. We now, in addition to everything that has traditionally been said about what is needed for a liberal democracy, we need a modicum of fellow feeling. We need a sense of responsibility for others, but also a disposition to take responsibility for ourselves and our dependents. So uh, my commentators will tell me if I'm wrong about supposing agreement on those propositions, but where does disagreement arise then? I would say it arises not about those propositions so much as how and by whom the qualities that we need are to be inculcated and what is the role of religion in fostering them. So here I think we have what may be the great domestic problem of our time, and that is how can we assure, best assure, a continuing supply of citizens and statespersons who can reflect soberly, deliberate well, and choose justly in such a way that others can count on our commitment and purpose? And what can we do to instill the habits and skills that we need in a pluralistic society? Now, 20 years ago, in the wake of the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s and 70s, Richard Newhouse correctly saw that the chief threat to our republic was not communism, as many thought at the time, but a, quote, collapse of the idea of freedom and of the social arrangements necessary to sustaining liberal democracy. So from what I've said, you know I agree with that. Like the intrepid hero of the Terminator, Newhouse wanted to increase the likelihood that future Americans would be up to the challenges ahead. With hindsight, however, it seems to me that Newhouse, uncharacteristically for him, held back from following his own train of thought to its natural conclusion. Though he mentioned in passing the, quote, lethal liberationisms that reached their frenzied apex in the late 60s and early 70s, end quote, he did not explore what that social revolution might be doing to the cultural foundations of the republic. Twenty years later, it now seems clear that those years of, quote, liberation took a dreadful toll on children and on the nation's principal seedbeds of character and competence, families and their surrounding communities of memory and mutual aid. Perhaps it would not have suited the upbeat mood of the new house who wrote The Naked Public Square to dwell on the state of American culture in 1984. The book was, after all, a rallying cry. But on the very last page, Newhouse observes, quote, the new thing we are looking for may not come at all. The naked public square may be the last phase of a failed experiment, end quote. No doubt he meant that warning as a spur to action. But today it has a more ominous sound. Now, there's nothing I would like better after this uh, cheery, upbeat talk that I have given than to be persuaded by Professors Macedo and McDougall that uh, I have painted too dark a picture. So I will now turn the podium over to them. Professor Macedo. 
Well, thank you uh, to the organizers uh, of this event. Uh, this uh, Madison program events are always splendid, and I admire the energy and uh, uh, accomplishments of this organization, and also the uh, accomplishments of Father Newhouse, uh, his important book and an important voice in our public intellectual life. Uh, and I'm glad, honored to uh, uh, be able to play a small part in celebrating this accomplishment. It's an honor and pleasure also to comment on a paper by Marianne Glendon. We were colleagues once removed at Harvard for eight years, and I deeply admire and respect her work. Uh, and I think she's right, and especially in the written, uh, the oral versions of her comments, uh, she emphasized the difficulty of a lot of these questions of means and instrumentalities, uh, policy questions. Uh, and I think we do have a large measure of agreement and commonality when it comes to ends. I think we would agree on uh, the importance of a whole wide array of civic virtues. And then I think questions and judgments about uh, policies, uh, institutions, educational regimes, and so on become very difficult. And I just want to uh, uh, emphasize, uh, I think, some additional difficulties and to put the emphasis slightly, slightly differently. I certainly share uh, uh, Marianne's opposition to any public school uh, curriculum or agenda that would take secularism as its aim uh, or that would uh, 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 promote uh, uh, as an agenda uh, secularism. Public school textbooks are written more under the uh, authority of, of state legislatures than courts. Uh, so uh, I think we want to be careful where we assign responsibility uh, uh, for this. And it seems to me as well that uh, resistance to the expansion of vouchers has more to do with the fact that uh, most people in this country live in suburbs in which they're extremely well served by their, pu their, their public schools and happy with their public schools uh, uh, than, uh, than inhibitions that are in place on account of the Supreme Court or even the state courts at this point. I mean, we live in a very segregated society on account of the uh, organization of local public services, and that seems to me actually the most important problem with public education, education in general in this country, not anything having to do with religion. I don't think that if we reintroduced uh, prayer or even uh, expanded the uh, uh, religious vouchers, we would get at the core of the problem of education in this country. The core of the problem of education in this country is, is the massive segregation by class. Uh, that exists on account of the push of desegregation and the pull of suburban privilege. And I don't know how we're going to get out of that, but I, I think the, the debates about religion and diversity are a bit of a distraction from that core problem. Now, I want to just address um, uh, the, the, uh, the crux, however, of a, a couple of the points that Mary Ann is making. And I, I think the virtue of a book like The Naked Public Square and indeed the sort of presentations we're making here, which come under the heading of public intellectualism, is that broad themes get developed, get announced, connecting basic principles with movements in our public life, and that's terrific. There's also, however, danger in such exercises, which is uh, questions get raised at way too high a level of abstraction and vagueness. And I think uh, Chris Eisgruber and, and, uh, and Phil Hamburger did a good job of, of pointing that out a bit yesterday. Um, so I want to ask a question. I mean, uh, Marianne raises a very provocative point in her paper, and it's, uh, she alluded to it here. What are the implications for civic life of the transformation now complete of this country's once vaguely Protestant public schools into, she says government schools, but I think she means secular schools uh, in the paper? Will those schools promote the traits a system of self-government requires in its citizens, or will they merely indoctrinate persons to serve the needs of the state? Will uh, schools in which uh, there are no official religious exercises be capable of promoting civic uh, virtue? Uh, well, good question. Uh, there are other advanced democracies that have precisely the sorts of policies that 
uh, Jerry Bradley was calling for and that, uh, that people here may sympathize with. Germany, Canada, Belgium, all the Scandinavian countries publicly fund religious schools. In England, there's not only public funding of religious schools, there's mandatory prayer in government-run schools. In the Netherlands, 65% of children attend publicly funded religious schools. Indeed, the Netherlands goes so far as to make educational pluralism, including the right to attend a school that reflects your preferred uh, religious viewpoint, a constitutional right. Groups of parents who want their children to receive an education in a distinctive religious or philosophical viewpoint, which is not available uh, for their children, have a constitutional right to have the government organize and fund that school. Dutch parents have, in other words, a positive right to publicly funded educational pluralism, and Charles Glenn and others have written about this uh, with great uh, admiration. So England, the Netherlands, lots of these countries have the sort of policies that Marianne might prefer. Well, I actually don't want her. She, she's actually raising hard questions about this, but that, that uh, Jerry, to a greater extent, was talking about yesterday. But policy instruments, let's put it this way, that, that are taken seriously by people that worry about whether we can sustain civic virtues in institutions that don't include uh, 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 either religious orientation in their, in their organization or... Uh, or prayer. Well, what else is different about those places uh, that I've just mentioned in comparison with the U.S.? They're strikingly secular. Uh, nobody goes to church except for the music. Uh, meanwhile, in the United States, with 60 years of the lousy separationist policies that, that we've heard many complaints about, uh, religion has remained strong and vibrant. Uh, according to my own armchair socializing, uh, I ask, which is the better policy uh, to support the health of religious institutions that may well be important to the sustenance of civic virtue. Now, there's nothing new about this. Uh, David Hume advocated public subsidies for the clergy. Uh, David Hume was no friend of religion. Uh, Adam Smith disagreed with him on this score, arguing that religious sects were crucial parts of civil society, that they played an important role uh, in civil society, and that uh, requiring them to compete for uh, adherents would be good for their health. Roger Williams and many others have long argued that the so-called separation of church and state, an unhelpful phrase, uh, one which we can throw around, uh, is does as much to protect religion from the state as the state from religion. So what I want to say at the policy level is let's be careful what we wish for. I recently organized a conference in London and uh, on, called Educating Citizens. The book is called International Perspectives on Civic Values and School Choice. And we go through a lot of these foreign uh, 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 ways of organizing funding of religious and other sorts of private schooling. And the other thing you find, of course, and I think we'll find it here as well, is that along with public dollars comes extensive public regulation. National curricula in these countries, national testing and so on. Now, they have much more centralized regimes in general. But I have little doubt that with public funds will flow uh, public regulation as well to ensure accountability with public standards. Indeed, as a matter of principle, I think we want to say uh, that it's inappropriate to publicly fund educational or other social service institutions and not hold them publicly accountable to public standards. Uh, of course, we have long-funded social service agencies uh, in this country. It's not because of the faith-based initiatives of the Bush administration. This has been the case for decades. Sixty-five percent of the budget, approximately, I think, of the Archdiocese of New York is public money uh, for hospitals and other social services. Nothing new about it. But once public funding exists, there will be all sorts of conflicts uh, between religious communities, especially those outside the mainstream, and public funding agencies. Public agencies will propound general guidelines uh, about how services should be provided by those who are, in effect, uh, subcontractors for the delivery of social services, whether they're secular or faith-based subcontractors. Uh, 
and uh, particular religious communities will sometimes find that the general rules and requirements uh, inhibit their capacity to fully express their religious mission and their beliefs. Uh, then what? Uh, people will object to general rules and requirements. Should, should, should there be a general presumption that when people object to general public rules and requirements, uh, uh, there should, should always be an exception made or an exemption made or a strong presumption in that direction when the requirements, when the objections or the requests for exceptions are religiously based, and only then? Well, that would seem to be uh, according an unequal privilege to religious communities uh, uh, as such. Those who have argued for such a standard often argue that this should be extended to conscientiously based uh, objections to general public rules as well. Bill Galston, John Tomasi, and others have argued for that. Uh, a, a general presumption in favor of exception making when the grounds for an objection to a general policy are conscientious well, that, that's a really a very broad and radical claim if we take such a claim seriously. Uh, uh, it was, of course, uh, the religious version of this was struck down in the form of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, uh, and the opinion striking down the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was not the left versus the right. The opinion was joined in by Scalia and Rehnquist, uh, and the dissenters were Breyer and Souter and O'Connor, uh, who would have upheld this exemption uh, presumption. But what's at stake here is not secularism versus religion. It's democratic self-governance. Uh, our capacity to pass laws that represent choices about how we want to deliver public services is what's at stake. Uh, the general rules that define public services, the goods that we promote, whether it's health care or education, will never be neutral in their attractiveness to different religious communities or different moral communities or different people in general. Uh, if they were, we wouldn't need governance. We'd unanimously converge on one thing that everybody would agree upon. Uh, lawmaking is about uh, uh, making choices. So the path um, of, 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 of greater funding of social services, uh, which I do support. I mean, I, I support expansion of vouchers, and I support uh, the continuance of the faith-based social services, but they're going to lead to lots of hard choices about which very general propositions are not going to do us a lot of good. They're going to be hard trade-offs and hard balancing here, and I think the general thrust of Mary Ann's remarks uh, are in that um, direction. Just, uh, just two very brief final points then, 10 seconds apiece. I, I don't think it's true that, uh, that the recent court opinions or the direction of our public culture stands for the exclusion of religiously grounded moral viewpoints. I guess this was part of what came up this morning. Uh, moral viewpoints are often religiously grounded, typically religiously grounded. I don't see any... Any, I don't see any way in which um, our liberal, liberal public culture actually um, uh, uh, raises problems for, for moral viewpoints that are religiously grounded, as long as we can discuss them, talk about them, and share them together in a, in a public community. Um, then final point. At the end of Marianne's paper, and in some of the remarks that I heard yesterday at the, at the Jerry Bradley uh, panel, I think there is sometimes a tendency to suggest uh, an equation I have a quote from Marianne's group, but I, but I won't read it. And I'm not, I don't think she wants to say this, actually. But, but a tendency to, to equate the religious with the virtuous. Well, I could read the quote. Um, um, uh, in our increasingly secular society, what many Americans now seem to want is for other people to be incorrigibly religious, or at least to behave as if they were. They want other people to cultivate the self-restraint that makes social life possible. Okay, so, uh, but, but we should not equate religious with being civically virtuous. I do think uh, that religious institutions are among the elements of civil society that are important to the cultivation of virtue. I don't know of any evidence to suggest that it's the beliefs per se, the beliefs in a transcendent source of meaning and value, 
that are the source of, 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 of civic virtue. I don't know of any evidence to suggest that at all. The existence of religious communities, I know, is, is plenty of evidence to that effect, are important communities. Now, it may be uh, that a belief in a transcendent is important, necessary, crucial uh, to moral conduct. John Locke thought that. But this is sort of like the old canard that atheists can't be trusted. I mean, Pierre Bale uh, disposed of this a good long time ago, I think. And let's just be careful here. Um, I'm not saying, and I, I don't want to, I think it was a, a, just a slippage, and um, I heard a slippage uh, of such a sort yesterday in some of Jerry's remarks. It's a little bit self-congratulatory on the part of religious people to equate uh, religion and civic virtue, and we all know that bad things have been done in the name of religion. Uh, lots of good things have also been done in the name of religion. There are good people who are non-believers, and it seems to me, and I think this is an important principle, that non-religious citizens are eminently capable of being good citizens, Moreover, we owe them equal concern and respect if our Constitution is to be grounded in moral principles which should rest on the equality of persons, not on commitment to religious beliefs. And if we uh, do allow only uh, that our Constitution is grounded on equality among believers, as Jerry seemed to say yesterday, then it seems to me our Constitution is a frank tyranny of the religious over the non-religious. Now, I'll, I'll conclude with that happy thought. <laughs> Professor McDougall. Thank you, Professor Stoner, and my apologies to you and Professor Glendon, indeed to all of you, for my tardiness. Came in five minutes late. I we'll just it, take it out of your time. I, thought, I know. I thought it was 2 o'clock. Uh, I don't know why I thought it was 2 o'clock. I've been staring at the schedule for two days. But as my drill sergeant uh, back in uh, Army basic training, he said he looked at my test scores, he said, well, son, I guess you must be pretty bright, but you still ain't got no common sense. <laughs> that drill sergeant, I'm sad to say, was absolutely right. Thank you uh, also to Robbie George and the Madison program for inviting me to this exciting conference. I've learned myself a great deal from the panelists, and I intend to make good use of their scholarship as I research the second volume of my American history that I'm engaged in. Uh, but what I might add to the conference, frankly, is less certain. I'm the last responder on the last panel, so everything's already been said. I'm not an expert in uh, legal theory, theology, or public policy. Indeed, I feel rather over my head at this conference. Uh, and uh, I can't even serve as a provocateur because I read Professor Glendon's paper over and over again and uh, I couldn't find anything I dissented from. <laughs> Struck me as insightful, prudential, uh, and largely confirmed my own experience as a professor in the academy and as a parent with two children in schools. So I fall back on my dubious historical reputation. I, uh, I want to suggest uh, that our debates about the naked public square can perhaps be placed in another frame of reference entirely. One that was briefly mentioned yesterday by uh, Professor Pakulak, but otherwise has not been mentioned at all. To wit, the American civil religion and its relationship to sectarian faiths. Now, it was a great, th a great privilege for me to have uh, the opportunity to reread the naked public square. I told Father Newhouse, I, it stands up tremendously well after 20 years. Uh, 
and I take my text from the book. This is from page 22. Jefferson, the Adamses, Madison, et al. had the deepest appreciation of the need for a public ethic and cultivation of what were called Republican virtues. Religious belief was seen as a reinforcement, if you will, to the public ethic. Religion uh, was the motivating force for good behavior. Uh, but the agreed-upon understanding of what constitutes good behavior was not to be derived from religious belief. In other words, religion was to motivate and sanction, but not necessarily to inform or shape the public ethic. They did not think it necessary to construct a new civil religion for the maintenance of republican virtue. And I go over to, uh, to uh, page uh, 6061. Moral redefinition is itself not easy to define. For our purposes, moral redefinition has to do with the meaning business. Religion is in the meaning business. Talk about the meaning of America is uncomfortably reminiscent of an antique and discredited language about the destiny, even the <coughs> manifest destiny, of America. Historically, mainline Protestantism provided that kind of vision of an experimental and exemplary America, the confidence that America had a meaning within the larger purposes of God. Abraham Lincoln, rightly celebrated as the foremost theologian of the American experiment, talked about America as a, quote, almost chosen people, unquote. Public ethics, almost chosen peoples, a meaning within the larger purposes of God. Sounds like civil religion to me. Well, the sp I would, uh, I'm old enough, I know many of you as well, to remember when the spiritual rhetoric in American politics, courtrooms, churches, schools, patriotic festivals were so pervasive, familiar, and unobjectionable that we all just took it for granted. Our national motto, in God we trust. Our pledge, a nation under God. Congress and Supreme Court pray at the start of sessions. Presidents of all parties have always made ritual supplications because our presidents are, in a sense, high priests supplications uh, for the United States to be blessed with divine protection. The last stanza of America begins, Our Father's God to Thee, author of liberty. And it ends by naming Great God, not George III, our King. The last stanza of the Star-Spangled Banner asks our heaven-rescued land to praise the power that has made and preserved us a nation. America the Beautiful asks that God shed his grace on thee. And I dare say most Americans even today, in the red states anyway, would likely agree, would likely agree with uh, Puritans uh, John Winthrop or Jonathan Mayhew, uh, Princeton Presbyterian Witherspoon and his disciple James Madison, Virginia Freemason George Washington, deists Thomas Jefferson and Franklin, that Americans are, quote, called unto liberty, unquote, a phrase from Paul's epistle to the Galatians, that we are, in a sense, a new chosen people, blessed with a new promised land, and that we have a mission to bestow liberty on all mankind by example, if not exertion. Over the course of 200 years, most Americans, well, let's say over the course of our first 100 or 125 years, most Americans found it easy to identify the God who watches over America with the God of their Protestant theology. But 
thanks to the free exercise of religion, what Judge Noonan has called the luster of our country, religious minorities have also been free to embrace the American creed with equal or indeed greater fervor because they were minorities. Thus did Bishop John Carroll, founder of the American Catholic Church, sing canticles of praise to the Lord for granting his little flock, once little, a country now become our own and taking us under, into her protection. And thus did Jewish immigrant Irving Berlin liken Americans to the children of Israel in the Sinai. God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with a light from above. When Americans of all sects or no sect gather in civil ceremonies to praise their freedom, honor its author, and rededicate themselves to this nation's ideals, they don't merely prove themselves a religious people, they make the United States itself a sort of religion. Or as G.K. Chesterton put it, a nation with the soul of a church. I learned in my research in the, that throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries, most Americans were sort of unconscious of this civil religion. They sort of took it for granted, but it was sort of, it was subconscious. Oh, a few knew Walt Whitman, the poet laureate of the ACR, American Civil Religion, certainly was explicit, as was his hero, Abraham Lincoln, the martyr and messiah of the ACR. Later, when the U.S. got in the business of exporting its faith in the Spanish-American and First World Wars, a handful of scholars did write books on, quote, the American religion, unquote, or the religion of the flag, a very interesting symbological study. But otherwise, statesmen, artists, teachers, preachers tended to disseminate America's creation myth, martyrology, moral code, theology, liturgy, church calendar, and eschatology of American republicanism without explicitly, explicitly acknowledging its status as a sort of transcendental creed. I'm sure many of you know it wasn't until 1967 that Berkeley sociologist Robert Bella described in a celebrated article what he called the American civil religion. Curiously, what led him to think about the matter was the inauguration of our first Roman Catholic president, John Kennedy. Here was Kennedy, this liberal, young, hip, rich, Harvard-trained, upscale Catholic politician, declaring in his inaugural the belief that the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, as John Kerry had it the other day, but from the hand of God. Kennedy asking God's blessing and God's help in the knowledge that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. Bella was fascinated by the non-sectarian or polysectarian cast of Kennedy's rhetoric. And he recalled President Eisenhower's observation, our government makes no sense unless it is founded in a deeply felt religious faith. And I don't care what it is. <laughs> Clearly, there was more to this than just feel-good piety or pandering to some religious right or religious left at certain points in our history. <clears throat> but who is this God of the founders? Bella never really sort of got around to answering that. Who is the God of the ACR, if not Jehovah or the Holy Trinity? 
Well, he's the God with no name, but a hundred names. Benjamin Franklin called him father of lights and supreme architect. Washington, the almighty being, invisible hand, parent of the human race. John Adams spoke of the patron of order, fountain of justice, and protector. Jefferson, the infinite power. Madison, the being who regulates the destiny of nations. Monroe, providence and the almighty. John Quincy Adams, the ark of our salvation and merely heaven. Andrew Jackson referred to the power and almighty being who mercifully protected our national infancy. And so on down to Lincoln. Well, Lincoln, you may know, never could embrace the, uh, the Christian faith, but was himself the Christ of our civil religion. Jackson posed for electoral purposes as a Presbyterian. That, he set that, that precedent. But in fact, Jackson, <laughs> Jackson was a fervent Freemason who believed in a God above all theologies, the very God whose all-seeing eye looks down benignly on the unfinished pyramid of the great seal of the United States and the $1 bill. Jefferson was an enlightened philosopher, and yet, no less than the devout Protestant presidents, he too swore fealty to that providence that seemed to watch over the American people. But divine blessing comes at a price. That was the message of Abraham, Moses, Jeremiah, Paul, Revelation to St. John, but also the message of John Winthrop, James Madison, and the radical deist who inspired the Declaration of Independence, Tom Paine. Tom Paine said this republic that he hoped would be created would thrive as the Lord promised to Abraham and Moses of old if it followed the Lord's dictates, and if it did not, it would become a byword among nations. The Founding Fathers called this Republican virtue but Republican virtue is always in short supply. Therefore, throughout our history, it's been the sacrifice of a few, beginning with George Washington and the Continental Army, that has allowed this nation dedicated to a proposition to survive for 225 years. Now, in conclusion, let me skip ahead. Where is this American civil religion today? This sense that we are a nation, we're not sure who God is, but, uh, and we don't endow a whole lot of theology in this God, but we believe this nation has a calling in history and that it does enjoy protection or at least will so long as we do this Lord's will. What has been stripped from the public square in the court decisions, the curriculum reforms, the speech codes of the late 20th century, and I might add in the devolution of the mainstream Protestant churches themselves because they've contributed to this. What's been stripped from the public square is not sectarian Christianity, because in one sense it was never there in the first place. This is a civil religion we're talking about. And in another sense, sectarian faiths have always been in the public square in the sense that they express their views in the, po in the policy arena as citizens vigorously. We see it today with evangelical Protestants, Roman Catholic bishops, denying communion, reform and orthodox Jews, all denominations weighing in at every level. What are, they, what are they doing? They're just citizens. They're just Americans competing in that Hamiltonian marketplace of power, that Madisonian free market in spirituality, and in the uh, wonderful effort in which Americans are especially gifted 
uh, which is to find uh, ways that they can worship both God and mammon at the same time. No, what the naked public square has really accomplished, it seems to me, is to delegitimate our civil religion in the policy arena. The grand ecumenical, sometimes Gnostic or Masonic cult that binds us together. And Newhouse reminds us in his book, that's what religio means. What binds us together? Well, it's a cult that has now been steadily banished since the 1960s, depriving our youth of the accumulated wisdom and prudence so painfully learned over the history of this nation and indeed Western civilization. And if they're deprived of that wisdom and prudence from history, they're also deprived of the spontaneous sources of civility, which are indispensable to consensual government. What are those sources? of inherited historical wisdom and the civility that supports. I submit they are the anthropology explicitly taught by Judeo-Christian humanism on the one hand, the nature of man, the nature of God, the relationship between the two, and on the other hand, the secular universals derived from enlightenment reason. And yet, in much of the academy today, biblical religion is proscribed while Enlightenment reason is increasingly denounced by postmodernists as an arbitrary discourse with no basis in truth that only privileges white male technocratic imperialist hegemony. Now I leave it to others to, who are more skilled than I to make the philosophical arguments or indeed even the value judgments about the contesting schools of thought uh, today. I simply ask as an historian how our pluralistic democracy can adhere if our two greatest sources of humanism are trampled underfoot. The two great sources of principles that lead us to reach out to our fellow human beings as equals and uh, creatures deserving of our respect. But I don't despair. Young people have a way of seeing through the BS of their elders. I see it on the campus every day. I take heart from that. And I've heard brilliant young minds give presentations this weekend. And so I'm led to suspect that once we baby boomers pass from the scene, and boy, are my students sick of us. <laughs> once we're gone, younger Americans will rescue our past and so secure our future. If only to get their shot at the American dream. And so the messages I took from my rereading of Father Newhouse are these. Speak the truth in love. Do justice and walk humbly with your God. Thank you. Well, Professor Glendon, let me invite uh, your response. Well, I'm very grateful to these two wonderful commentators, and uh, I'm mindful of uh, something that Father Newhouse always says, that uh, it's a great achievement to achieve disagreement. Uh, you have to work on it. 
to get disagreement, and, uh, and we're having a little problem uh, uh, getting to the areas of disagreement. I, I want to start with uh, a reflection on Professor McDougall's idea that with religion in America, we are dealing with an inheritance. And uh, this, it seems to me, uh, the awareness of that uh, was the impetus for my writing the passage that uh, Professor Macedo quoted, my reflection, my uneasiness with the assumption that we Americans are incorrigibly religious, as Father Newhouse says, and that, as Professor Macedo reminded us, we uh, seem on most measurable scales to be uh, much more vibrantly religious than uh, other advanced post-industrialist societies. Nevertheless, I think it is a mistake to assume that that religiosity, whatever it is, simply is a self-sustaining thing. Of course, I would agree with Professor Macedo that uh, religion is not the only source of civic virtue. But I think in a country like ours, we have to be worried about all our sources of civic virtue, particularly because we are much more heterogeneous than other liberal democracies. So uh, I wrote uh, in, in another line. Steve, I wish you'd gone on to the line that uh, I like best there, and I'm probably not going to be able to find it, but it was something like this. Uh, I'm afraid we've become a nation of free riders coasting along on inherited social capital. Now, where I come from in Boston, we take a very dim view of uh, using up capital. In fact, there's a story about a Boston matron who was walking across the common one day, and she ran into a roommate, former college roommate of hers, who from dress and appearance and the way she was swinging her pocketbook was apparently engaged in the world's oldest profession. And the matron said, why, Muffy, whatever has happened to you? And Muffy replied, well, it was either this or dip into capital. Uh, so uh, I, I, I do think that we have to be attentive to nourishing the seedbeds, religious or non-religious. So now you see Steve is nodding his head, and I've I got to get to some disagreements here. Uh, so uh, where could we disagree? Uh, let me throw this out. Uh, textbooks, right. Uh, courts don't dictate the contents of textbooks. And Professor Macedo said uh, that's really the realm of the legislature. Well, yes, but let's examine that a little further. Uh, legislators don't write textbooks, and legislators are very much subject to lobbying to the point where I, I had three children. One went to a public high school. One went to a non-denominational private high school. One went to a Catholic high school. In uh, the private non-denominational school and the public high school, uh, the textbooks were very much the same and very much like textbooks in public schools all over the country, which are 
produced by an industry that in turn is very much influenced by uh, the views of, I uh, guess he's nodding his head again, I just don't know what to do here. <laughs> but uh, in, in the uh, Daedalus, the, the journal of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, there was an article written by a very reputable student of education who says that one of the reasons these textbooks have that look, that sameness, is there is an understanding among the writers and publishers that anything written before 1970 is fatally infected with racism and sexism. Now, there's something wrong if parts of our inheritance are being junked on those grounds. So uh, I think a little nuance on the idea of where textbooks come from is in order. And then on, on the, what is the core of the problem of education? Uh, Professor Macedo says segregation by class. Well, it certainly is the case that our educational system is failing millions of children. Uh, Professor Macedo says vouchers aren't the answer, but who is doing a good job precisely at giving high-quality education to the most disadvantaged young people in our society of all races and economic classes? It is the Catholic schools. And I come back to this question of inheritance. Uh, first of all, the vouchers are, are relevant to that, but the question of inheritance is relevant too. If you, and here we get to a, another point where I think we may have disagreement, uh, if you require these schools or other schools to, uh, in the name of legitimate state regulation, if you require them to strip themselves of the very identity that motivates them to do what they're doing, and why do they do what they're doing? Because they see Jesus Christ in the face of every other human being. If you take that away from them, then you're going to have so-called religious schools that are not essentially different from other schools. And uh, this cannot be a gain for the sources of competence and character in our society. So I think real hard questions that are coming up in our legal system involving hospitals, schools, other recipients, direct or indirect of public funds, is how much they are going to be stripped of what makes them what they are in the name of regulation. And I certainly, just to be clear, I'm certainly in favor of regulation for, that, uh, for excellence in the schools, and I'm certainly in favor of uh, regulation for excellence in the hospitals, but I do think that there has to be room, and very ample room, for conscientious Exemption. Otherwise, the government is just saying to these recipients, direct or indirect of funds, shut up and do the work. Um, well, maybe that's enough to, uh, to, to get us started. Well, we have 20 minutes for questions, and let's begin, as the Madison custom has it, uh, with uh, student questions. Floor's open. You can ask a question of agreement if no disagreement has been reached. Questions? They're worn out. Yes, sir.
Steve is determined. <laughs> uh, as you probably know from my extensive quotation from John Stuart Mill, uh, I am inclined to think that uh, the difficulties of uh, public schools trying to do much more than be uh, an all-purpose system in our kind of society are very serious, and my own uh, solution would be the one that Mill outlines, that there ought to be a real option, not just for the determined homeschooler, not just for the person who can pay the crushing real estate tax for the local schools and then a private school tuition on top of that. There ought to be a real option to have the kind of school that will provide the, will, will enable parents to transmit their values to their children. Now, having said that, I mean, I, I mentioned having three kids in, in three different kinds of schools on chastity. So here's what the non-denominational private school says. Um, 14-year-old is sent home saying, Mom, we have a new course at school. It's, uh, it's called Choices. And we're not supposed to talk to our parents about it. <laughs> uh, two parents in all of this, the Windsor School in Boston has a very fine reputation. Two parents went down to complain about that, myself and an Orthodox Jewish woman. Everybody else was all these other incorrigibly religious Americans were, were fine with that. That's Boston. Uh, <laughs> that's Boston. Uh, <laughs> then uh, in the Newton schools, uh, which is where another one of my daughters went, uh, the sex education classes were right out front with, uh, you don't know unless you try it and here's how you do it. And, uh, and this has been true since the mid-1980s at least. I mean, this is just uh, all uh, out front and a couple of lonely parents. I don't even get involved in the Newton Public Schools. I gave up on it, but uh, there are a couple of lonely parents who try to shift uh, the curriculum there, but it's very, very difficult. So I, I just think on, on the issues of it's going to be different in Salt Lake City from what it is in Newton. Uh, and that's fine. I mean, local control of public schools is a good thing. But uh, there's a lot of control that is not local, that is national, that comes through the curriculum. And uh, that's a very hard thing to attack. I'm tempted to ask what happened in the Catholic schools, but uh, is there, is there, <laughs> is, <it true? laughs> is there any response from the other panelists? I, I, I went to a Jesuit high school, and I can remember uh, the sex education class with Father uh, McMahon. Uh, uh -oh. not, not, in, not in great detail. I'm not sure we learned all that much, but uh, uh, I'm, 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 I'm sympathetic. I mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic to what Marianne's saying, actually, and I, I, I uh, uh, am in favor of the um, uh, the expansion of uh, vouchers. I mean, this is a this is a curious area because there may be malfunctions in the democratic process around these sorts of institutions, and then the question becomes. Judicial activism. I mean, when do the courts step in and decide uh, that the choices being made by local political communities are uh, unreasonable and beyond constitutional limits? So we have a kind of flip here in the usual um, array of 
uh, preferences with respect to, you know, substantive outcomes and agencies of substantive outcomes, because I totally agree with Marianne on the lobby, you know, that it's, it's lobbying of state legislatures and delegation to boards that regulate the choice of textbooks in Texas and California and places like that, which I guess drive this because they choose books en masse and so on. But these are these are coming out of uh, a flawed, but a, but, a, but a flawed democratic process. And um, uh, now, uh, the expansion of a regulated choice system may, uh, you know, be part of the answer. I think it probably is. I don't think it's particularly attractive to people in suburbs who are doing very well. The Catholic schools do have an advantage of the sort that Marianne. Interestingly, there's not much evidence that it's a general religious school advantage. Fundamentalist academies don't have all the same advantages. They're much fewer and not as well studied, and all of these things are poorly understood. But I, I agree on the... Uh